Hello everyone, welcome to the latest episode of Inner Leadership Podcast. Today is slightly different in that we are bringing you a recording of a live webinar that we held in Singapore in April 2020. Thank you. So uh, good evening everyone and uh, thank you for joining us today uh, for this webinar um, at the Inner Leadership Conference. As some of you may know, this conference was supposed to happen in real life, but uh, I don't need to share why we've moved it to uh, a webinar format. And um, thank you so much for joining uh, myself, Navin Amrasuria, and my good friend, Isien, um, who's, uh, who's joining us from his office as well. Um, before we kick things on, I'm going to start to, uh, I'm just going to share a little bit about uh, the reason for the Inner Leadership Conference existence. Um, ultimately, all the information that we're filtering in the world is going through our minds. And um, in order to deal with the vicissitudes of life, to deal with its uncertainties, the, the cultivation of the mind um, is a necessary skill today. And uh, in the time of COVID, we find that mental well-being is the predominant uh, the unintended predominant condition of what the world is experiencing more so than, uh, than even the medical side. Um, you know, about 300,000 people have been infected, but there are 7 billion people on the planet that have been mentally uh, affected by, by COVID as well. And uh, resilience and well-being is so important. So uh, I, I speak for myself that, uh, you know, my journey into this world has, is, is very shallow. Um, I'm a lay person who's, who was interested in the neuroscience behind training the mind, and that's what got me here. But um, with the little bit that I know and my background uh, working for Singapore's oldest family business and being a part of the fifth generation of an old company, I'd love to share anything that I can with you. Uh, I'd like to pass the mic on now to Isien, who will tell you a bit more about himself and how he comes to inner leadership. Thanks, Nav. Um, so my name is Isien. Um, Eaton House is my family business. Uh, prior to joining Eaton House, um, I worked in the U.S. Uh, first as an investment banking analyst, and um, after that, I was a hedge fund analyst. So I did that for about five years. Uh, traveled around the world for another year, and uh, came back to Eaton House. And uh, it's kind of hard to nail down what my JD is, uh, Eaton House. Um, you could say I look after all the school operations. Um, but uh, yeah, we basically have about 120 schools um, throughout Asia. I know this is a tough time uh, for everyone in the world. Um, I can speak uh, from this with experience, given that uh, I have about 50 schools in China right now that have been going through lockdown and have been going through uh, the great adventure that is e-learning. And uh, in Singapore, we have about, um, about 40 schools. And uh, yes, um, we've been uh, dealing with the COVID situation as well. I stumbled upon uh, mindfulness um, by sheer chance, really. Um, I think, um, quite frankly, it was an ex-girlfriend uh, who sent me a YouTube link. And she said, try this. And um, I just sat down and listened to the YouTube link. And uh, I found myself uh, experiencing um, a sense of peace that I just didn't really know existed. And at that point, um, I had only been a, a manager, so to speak, for um, a year in Eaton House. 
uh, prior to that, I was managing, I guess you could say, situations in, a, in finance. Um, so the decisions are quite clear, quite binary. Um, buy, don't buy, or uh, don't do anything. And um, managing people, uh, there are a lot more options. Uh, it's not binary. And um, I, I think uh, it was quite a shock for me my first year. And uh, mindfulness really helped me find, I think sometimes, sometimes people define mindfulness as uh, the space between thoughts. And it really helped me um, find the space between thoughts um, to instead of choosing fight or flight, um, we are in a difficult situation uh, to maybe just give you just a little bit amount of space. Um, so I think perhaps there's a mastery level, which is fight, flight, or flow. And uh, maybe there's some days I'm there, some days I'm not. Um, but what I can say is that it's been very helpful uh, to me and I'm very lucky to have met uh, Naveen, which has uh, helped me in my journey as well. Yeah, the, um, I just want to pick up on what you said about um, fight, flight, or flow. Um, one of the most uh, beautiful definitions that I've come across is Viktor Frankl's idea that um, in between a stimulus and a response, there's a very small space. And in that space is your freedom to choose. So I see mindfulness and meditation practice as the art of increasing that space, both in terms of duration and quality. And um, right before this call, Isian and I were talking about how uh, some people right now are hugely affected by the, the COVID crisis. And, and uh, for example, my, my family business, uh, which has operations in several industries, um, there are some which really don't have any revenue, which means that, you know, there's implications to people's jobs and all that. Um, but what Ethan and I would love to bring to you tonight, first and foremost, is a sense of relaxation. Because the beauty about this practice is it allows you to get in touch with the, the, the beauty that is the moment. You know, the fact that you're sitting on a comfortable chair, maybe in a nice room, uh, leaning back and listening to this through the, the earphones that you have and that all of us here are well-fed and um, we, we're not struggling existentially. Well, maybe we are struggling existentially, but not physically. Um, but yeah, um, we'd love to guide you through um, a relaxation. And this wouldn't be an inner leadership uh, conference talk if we didn't have a little bit of meditation. So how it's gonna work is uh, Isian and I will do this together and I will lead the first half, which will be about five minutes, and then I will hand it over to him to continue it. And just settle into wherever you are, wherever you may find yourself. Just take a moment to arrive. Really arrive. Arrive in your chair. Arrive in your body. Feel your head resting on your body. Notice your face and relax the muscles in your eyes. Relax the muscles 
on your cheeks. Let your head gently rest on your shoulders. Notice the sensations in your shoulders. And as you take a breath and exhale, see if you can soften your shoulders just a little. As you soften your body, keep your back straight. Don't overextend it, just gently upright so you can breathe comfortably. And keep your front soft, your heart open. Try and find places of ease, places of opening. Like calm water, gently rippling. Start to notice your chest rising and falling. The rhythm that began from the moment you were born. Notice the pleasure of breathing in. Notice the relaxation of breathing out. Breathing in, you're aware of your breath. And breathing out, you can gently smile. mind wanders, gently bring it back to the breath.
Soften your hands, soften your feet. And keep your attention gently resting on the breath. Now we will gently move our attention to the next instructions. I invite you to join me in a little exploration. Look into the center of your heart and you will find a beautiful garden, the most beautiful garden that you have ever seen. Imagine it and imagine that you're in your garden of your heart. Walk inside. Notice what you smell. The smell of grass, of dew. Breathe it in and out. And as you walk into your garden, look around and you'll see flowers, shrubs of flowers everywhere. To your left, to your right. It's so beautiful. Roses, chrysanthemums, orchids, different colors. And as you walk, look around. You don't see most people, but suddenly you see someone in front of you. Find someone in your mind's eye who's easy to love. Doesn't have to be a person just anyone easy to love. Choose that person. The person's in front of you. Walk up to that person and give the person a flower from the garden of your heart. Notice how the person smiles. Maybe a person laughs. And I invite you to tell this person, I love you. I wish that everything will be easy for you. I wish that you will be healthy. I wish that you will be happy. And I wish that you live a life without suffering. And I invite you to thank the person 
take a step back and continue walking at the garden in your heart. And as you walk, you see someone else, someone who you might see every day that you don't know so well. It could be a receptionist, a security guard, a grab driver, anyone. And this person's in front of you now. And I invite you to give this person a flower of your heart. Notice how the person thanks you and seems maybe surprised. And tell the person, I love you. I wish that you are happy. I wish that you are healthy. And I wish you live a life without suffering. Notice how the person responds. Notice how you respond. And take a step back. And turn and continue walking. Continue walking around your garden. Breathe in the fresh air and breathe out. And as you walk, you notice someone else in the distance, someone that you find a little bit harder to love. Could be someone that you just had a difficult discussion with. Does anyone that's difficult to love. Walk towards this person. Reach to get the flower. And give this person a flower from your heart. I invite you to tell this person, I love you. I wish that you are well. I wish that you will be happy. I wish a life of ease for you. And I wish that you will live a life without suffering. Notice how you feel. And take a step back. Thank the person. Turn around and continue walking in the garden. As you walk, I invite you to look around and notice that the flowers everywhere 
flowers to your left, flowers in front of you, as far as the eye can see, flowers to your right. And I invite you to reach down, pick up flowers, as many as you can, and give them to members of your family. Here's one for you. And the next person, here's one for you. For you. For you. For you. And reach down again. Pick up more flowers. And give them to everyone who you work with. To you. To you. To you. To you. And turn around. And you notice a sea of flowers. There's a flower for everyone in Singapore. It's a flower for everyone in the world, right in front of you. Notice how you feel. And notice how big this garden seems to you now versus when you first came into it. It's the funny thing about your garden inside of your heart. It was always there inside of you. And I invite you to breathe in and let it go. And gently wriggle your toes, your fingers, as you slowly come back into the world. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Yixian. Um, yeah, before we, uh, we get into the nuts and bolts of contemplative leadership, um, I think uh, Yixian would agree with me if we both have to thank a teacher called Leigh Bressington, who uh, taught us this, uh, this particular visualization technique on a retreat we both attended. And, um, the retreat was actually hosted by someone who was really, really well known in the technology space in California. And it's quite fascinating how over the last uh, 10, 15 years, uh, meditation and mindfulness have kind of become buzzwords for contemplative practice and its uh, intersection with, uh, with business and commerce. So the format of this talk is just kind of a free flow conversation between me and Yixian which we do anyway, <laughs> so we didn't have to prepare that much. Um, but Isen, I'd like to ask you, um, you know, you talked a little bit about your journey getting into mindfulness and ex-girlfriend introducing you to the concept. 
Don't tell my wife. <laughs> <laughs> how, um, how have you found, um, how have you found the practice useful in a leadership position that you hold running the Eaton House International Group? I think we're all dealing with so much. I mean, right now, for example, um, everyone's like up to here, right? And um, I think it's quite obvious that everyone's been running scared for a while. And as a leader in this moment of time, you need to be able to manage yourself. And um, if you don't manage yourself, you can't manage people around you because they'll just look at you and go like, like, who is this guy? And I think I found it to be just a little bit of space, a little bit of magic in the morning. Um, I'm lucky enough that I can, even though I've got two new, new, new babies, uh, new twins in my life, I'm lucky enough that I can uh, carve out some time in the morning just to find some, some space. And uh, if it weren't for that space, uh, the rest of the day is just an animal house, I guess. <laughs> I think um, in terms of education, um, it's the brave new world. Um, we keep thinking about skills, about knowledge that we can teach our children. And uh, this is a frontier that's quite new in the world of education. Uh, social emotional learning has been around for quite a while. I think uh, those of us who went to school in Singapore, uh, you might refer to this as a uh, civics and moral ed, Hong Kong Ming. <laughs> I think uh, that was the government's attempt to teach us. Um, but um, I think uh, the world of education is digging into this uh, new frontier. And as you do the research um, on mindfulness in schools, you discover that um, it's important for teachers and um, to have a practice of their own. If not, they won't be able to teach this uh, to their children. And I believe that um, as a leader of my organization, I can't ask someone to teach something that I don't believe in, um, that I won't practice myself. Mm. So professionally, um, I see this uh, useful um, in several ways. And um, as a new father, I'm finding, uh, <laughs> actually, I was just talking to Naveen about this. Uh, my, my new boat, my babies, uh, my twins, they're about three and a half weeks old. <laughs> and uh, it's been a journey. And uh, if anyone, um, yeah, my twins have probably taught me more about mindfulness than any teacher. <laughs> because um, I'll give an instance. Um, when a baby is in your hands, and the baby's crying. You didn't do anything to make the baby cry. Maybe you did, but most of the time, you didn't do anything to make the baby cry. And you can't really help but feel like, I've done something wrong, that, uh, that I need to do something to help this baby, because my baby's crying. It's kind of hardwired in us. But the reality is um, that maybe the baby just needs to cry. Maybe what the baby needs right now is something that you can't give right now. And um, something that um, is very true, right? Um, it's kind of out of our control. It's quite unpleasant. It's right in our face, uh, in your hands. Um, but yet, you know, why, do you, why are we so triggered by it? Um, it's something that I feel like uh, it's very relatable to everyone and everyone, um, even those without children. Uh, for example, your boss comes up to you and then uh, starts like uh, telling you things that you don't want to hear. Well, if, if these are true things, if they're, if they're a reflection of reality, um, then why are you triggered by it? Um, it might be pleasant, it might be unpleasant, it's real. 
I'm sorry, that was a bit long-winded. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it speaks to the kids in us all. Um, and, you know, they're little kids and they're big kids. Um, but, uh, but, you know, just building on what you said. Um, so my family's been in the luxury goods industry for almost 150 years. And um, BP De Silva started as a humble jeweler on the banks of the Singapore River. For most of the time, it was a manufacturing jeweler. So there was always an emphasis on production. And when you create a beautiful piece of jewelry, you have craftspeople that spend decades, sometimes their entire lives, uh, looking at very, very small objects for very long periods of time, concentrating all of their effort and attention on a single imperfection in a gem and polishing it up. And uh, when, you, when I reflect on my experience with luxury brands today, um, there is, there is a tendency for, um, for luxury to be, pre be presented from a lifestyle perspective. So if we think about influencers or if we think about people that live a certain particular lifestyle. But for me, luxury has always been interesting from the craft point of view. And when you meet craftspeople, if you took the average marketing manager of a luxury brand and the average craftsperson of a luxury brand, generally the craftsperson would be more content and be more balanced and have better well-being. And, um, and I'd always wondered that, wonder why that was. Um, and as soon as you start getting into the practice of meditation, um, what it enables you to do is, is to create that space that Isian was speaking of, you know, that, that moment of, of pause to kind of consider whether this relentless flow of information, maybe from an angry boss or maybe from a, from a child that, that can't, can't manage his or her emotions is coming at you. And you don't always get it right. I mean, oh man, I, 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 you know, it's very rare that I get it right. But you see that, this, that, that the mind has a tendency to react. And I think uh, that shift from living in a, a world of constant reaction to one of just taking a step back and taking a single breath and being able to look at, you know, data or being able to look at a conversation that you're having with your, your partner or your spouse. It's, it's so powerful. That small space makes a world of difference. You know, um, I guess uh, I'm going to bring in a, one of my interests uh, into the conversation. Uh, I do technical diving. Um, I used to do technical diving before I became a father. Um, so um, yeah, Now you're banned by your <laughs> wife, right? <laughs> now wow. you automatic divorce if you go technical diving. <laughs> so, um, yeah, technical diving is uh, everything that recreational diving tells you don't do. Uh, so going very deep, going into a cave, going into a wreck and deep. And uh, the first, um, so uh, your physiology does some funny things to you uh, when you're breathing air uh, deep in the water. Uh, they call it nitrogen narcosis. Uh, basically, you feel like you're drunk. And uh, the first time I was exposed to this um, at uh, deeper depths, um, and of course, um, as part of the instruction, they, uh, stress, they, they, they stress you out by giving you um, a problem after problem. And I remember just... Um, being that deep and um, feeling my heartbeat. So that's my body's response uh, to that, uh, to being very deep and breathing air. Uh, I can feel my heartbeat. And the first time I felt, I, I heard it, it was like, boom, boom, boom. 
And um, when these um, stressors started coming towards me, these problems, like I just freaked out. And uh, you could tell, um, the instructor later on told me, he said that uh, you look like you were like a, like a, a fish that was like literally like uh, spasming <laughs> as I was trying to deal with crisis after crisis. And um, afterwards, when I came out of the water and I kind of sat there and I, I actually had a chance to go underneath a coconut tree and um, A, calm down and B, visualize the whole dive. Visualize everything that could go wrong to me. Um, visualize that sound in my head. And in the afternoon, um, so the first dive was in the morning. The afternoon, we went out there and we did the same thing again, except harder. And yeah, it was effortless for me just felt like a walk in the park. And I think what amazes me is um, it was the same person, you know, who went for the dive. Um, pretty much uh, same, if not harder, stimuli that was given to me. Um, but yeah, it's completely different response. And uh, the only thing that changed is something clicked uh, between my ears. And I, so that's kind of like a very clear example. I think uh, real life and management is not so clear. Because it's, it's very rare you get very clear feedback that you have done something right or wrong. Um, as a leader, you might not see uh, the result of your actions till years later when someone might just pull you aside and say, hey, by the way, what you said to me really mattered. Um, but yeah, it's just changing what goes on between your ears. There's no price to that. And um, you know, just building on what ECM said, um, I'm reminded of this, uh, this idea. I think it, it was by uh, economist. Uh, I think it was Herbert Nicole or something like that. But uh, he said, in an age of an abundance of information, uh, it leads to a poverty of attention. So mm. when you think of, when I think of Isian and his dive and having to manage all these differing sources of information, you know, the, the amount of oxygen he has left, uh, the technical procedures he's supposed to do, um, you know, that's, that's a lot to, to handle. And when we are task loading this onto our brain, if we start worrying, worrying about all that information, there's a new task that's added to the brain. Mm. So um, I used to do amateur car racing. And when you're racing a car, you're going really, really fast. And um, there is also a lot of information and feedback that's happening. You know, uh, what is the grip level of your tires? What's the change in the track condition? What is the suspension setup relative to the corner you're going into? How are you balancing the limits of adhesion? And there's a calculation that you can perform to map out a race and race strategy before. But when you're in the moment and you're dealing with fractions of a second, if you start worrying about a mistake that you made, or if you start, um, if you start getting uh, obsessed with a particular point, what's happening is your brain is just being loaded up with, with, with processes and tasks that is, uh, that is diminishing the quality of attention that, that I can bring to bear on that situation. So when you think of living in the past or thinking about the future in a strange way, this is also eating away at the processing power that, that one may have in the present. Um, I, as I mentioned a bit earlier, I got into meditation primarily because of the advances in uh, neuroimaging technology that happened in about the year 2000 to 2015. I mean, still continuing. And basically, um, there was a group of uh, psychologists, social scientists, neuroscientists that showed the efficacy of training the muscle of attention. Um, 
And when you train the muscle of attention, you start to operate very differently in the world. Um, being able to focus on the correct problem at the correct time, to be able to prioritize in, in, in days that no longer have any routine. I mean, they didn't have routine before COVID and they sure as hell won't have routine after COVID. So, you know, how do you deal with that onslaught of, of your professional life, your personal life, your relationships? We need tools. Um, and, um, and yeah, I, I like ECN, I really resonate with that idea of being able to stay in the eye of the storm, or at least try to for as long as we can. Yeah, it's, I guess sometimes I struggle between, um, so it's possible I feel to be too mindful and too detached from the world, uh, which I think by default means you're not mindful. Um, so I guess uh, an example being, um, uh, Dick, I think what's commonly talked about, um, now I've, meant, I've talked about this story and, and everyone has a similar story uh, who's ever meditated. Uh, you could go through an entire day, be perfectly mindful, and then you go back home and then you see your wife and then you get into a shouting match. <laughs> and um, sometimes I feel like, uh, I think that's why a lot of practices, um, there's uh, one which involves more of the heart and one involved that, and one involves more of the head. Um, both are kind of helpful. Uh, you need both. <laughs> and uh, yeah, they exist for a reason. Yeah, you know, when I, when I think about that, um, I think, when I think about that idea of, of you know, uh, maybe a meditator being somehow better than someone else, uh, I strongly disagree with, with that concept. I, I, I think that, that all of us are just trying to find ways to live in the world and there are different tools out there. And one of the dangers of uh, mindfulness practice, in my opinion, is sometimes being too fixated on the outcome. So if, if, if we think that, you know, after a 10 minute or, or hour sit or whatever, that we'll never ever get angry again, uh, you know, that's a, that's a kind of, expectation that that ultimately will lead to disappointment because we will get angry because we are human beings um and and again being fixated on the outcome uh makes us lose uh discovering the joy of the process and there's a story that i really love uh which is about uh this meditation teacher teaching a group of people how to grow tomatoes so when he asked them the question how do you grow a tomato they talk about you know watering the soil, you know, making sure the seed is, is kept well, fertilizing it. Um, but it was a trick question. Uh, a farmer doesn't actually grow tomato. A farmer merely creates the ideal conditions for the seed to sprout. And a, a farmer will plant hundreds, thousands of seeds, and not all of them will sprout. But what is in his power, what is in his control, is to make sure that the conditions, the soil, the fertilizer, the nitrogen, uh, the amount of sunlight, the location which is planted is as optimal as possible to increase the probability of the tomato growing. So when I think of this practice and the word cultivation, I think of the farmer and how the oldest farmers must find a lot of pleasure in just creating conditions and not really worrying about the result because you know, over their life, they must have had some bad harvests. So, so yeah. Yeah, when I first started my journey, um, 
the first time I ever meditated, I, I ended up in quite a deep spot, I guess, purely by accident. And um, the next day, I remember I rushed um, to my uh, where I was meditating and I sat down and I tried really, really hard to get there <laughs> and uh, didn't get anywhere. Uh, seemed quite frustrated. And I remember thinking to myself, I think I Googled, why does this meditation stuff not work? <laughs> Google has the answer. <laughs> Guru Google. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, and I discovered, yeah, it's one of those things, right? Uh, there's no status bar. Uh, there's nothing. The more you reach for it, the more it moves away. And uh, yeah, like what you said, um, just looking at it doesn't really help. You just kind of got to settle into it. And uh, I still catch myself a lot um, in my morning sits, uh, trying to struggle to try and get somewhere. Um, especially as, a, as I've deepened my journey in meditation, uh, you can't help but want to make progress. <laughs> mm. But in reality, I guess uh, the other day I was thinking to myself, like, why am I doing this? Um, I'm just doing this to create space. <laughs> I'm just doing this, um, yeah, to create some level of peace, um, uh, a level of peace in me that uh, I might not have for the rest of the day. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I guess it's... Uh, the reason, the reason, the raison d'etre, it kind of comes back once in a while. And then, like all things, it's kind of useful to ask yourself, yeah, why are you doing it? And um, if some people, they kind of fall out of it for a while, that's okay. Um, it's always there. You can come back to it. So I think at this stage, um, you know, we'll open the floor to questions and answers. You can, uh, you can type it in on your, on, your, um, on your app. I think there's a Q&A box that you can put some stuff in. And uh, we have a question right now, um, which I'll read out. So does your mindfulness uh, or contemplation manifest differently at home or with friends compared to in the workplace? And if so, in what ways? Uh, Yix, you want to take this one first? You know, um, as a leader of my organization, I actually found myself, I, I thought it was quite interesting. I, I didn't dare to lead a meditation uh, at work. And um, I think it's because of maybe whatever preconceived notions I thought that um, I might have. Um, and uh, I think it was after I watched Shaming Ming Tan and Matthew Ricard speak, um, and they did a one-minute meditation. I just thought to myself, man, what's the worst that's going to happen in one minute? Um, so I did it for the first time at work. And uh, yeah, I mean, like everything went fine. In fact, I found out later on that... Uh, it so happened that when I led that meditation, it was a group of five of us who were going to start a meeting. And uh, one of the five had just joined the organization. That was about three years ago. Uh, he's still with us today. And that person, I think, right after I walked out from that meeting, he told um, his boss, uh, I've never, ever met a boss, a leader in the company who starts off a meeting with meditation. Um, I only found out about it later on. Um, and yeah, I realized that this... Um, this thing that was stopping me from doing this at work, uh, it was just a construct in my head, right? And it wasn't very much a useful construct. Um, I don't do it enough, to be honest. I should do it more. Um, and interestingly, um, to, my, to my immediate family, um, I find it quite difficult uh, to do it, uh, to, to lead a meditation. I've never gone there. Uh, my wife and I, uh, we have different practice practices. Uh, we might share a practice once in a while. Uh, but she likes uh, stuff that's a little bit more uh, heart-based and I like things that are a little bit more, I guess, nothing-based. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we do share stuff once in a while. We do share practice once in a while. Um, I think uh, when actually my, my children 
or in her belly. Um, we actually would um, do these uh, meditations uh, with us, uh, with our hands on her belly. And uh, yeah, that was pretty cool because uh, as we did it, I remember we felt a kick. <laughs> and that was pretty cool. That was pretty well. But yeah. So uh, answering the question myself, I think, um, you know, I think this is a meta skill. So it's kind of like saying, you know, if you, if you run every evening, does that help your walking? And it, it inevitably will. So mindfulness is a, is a wonderful practice because it's one that underpins a lot of other practices. So for example, if I, I used to like football a lot as a kid, you know, I could train every day for an hour and get reasonably good at football, but it would help me in that very narrow dimension, uh, that, that very narrow uh, application. But, you know, if I meditated an hour every day, it actually changes a lot of the interactions that I have. Um, and going back to bringing this into the workplace, uh, I'd like to touch on someone that uh, ECN men mentioned, Chad Meng Tan. So Meng was uh, one of the first hundred engineers at Google. And in fact, he's one of the uh, uh, brains that is behind inner leadership itself. Uh, and, and he basically came to realize the value of contemplative practice and brought it to Google it in a way uh, through the uh, Search Inside Yourself Leadership Training Program, uh, which was kind of the first corporate America mindfulness program back in 2006 that really made it big. And, you know, uh, 14 years later, it, mindfulness is not something that the guy who smokes weed in the corner does. Uh, it's, it's something that, you know, uh, is really accepted as um, an important life skill uh, that contributes directly to the performance of uh, organizations all around the world. So um, if any of you would like to really deep dive into uh, implementing mindfulness in a corporate setting, uh, I would highly recommend Search Inside Yourself uh, Leadership Institute. Um, which uh, which really pioneered the concept. I guess this question, uh, in the absence of more questions, uh, I got. I thought one thing that came to my mind was, uh, I guess, the importance of being secular. And I think uh, obviously, when you're at work, um, you need to keep everything secular. Um, and I guess I'm constantly amazed because I think I've I've been hyper aware of that. And uh, most people actually don't care. It seems <laughs> like some people care. And, and you know that that's fine um i think i've heard some people say um when i close my eyes so i think what this person said is like you want me to think about my head um that's okay uh, i can think about my head you want me to touch my head think about my head that's okay you want me to think about nothing that is not okay because that's where god comes in and you are not qualified to talk about god to me and the first time i kind of heard that i was like oh wow okay <laughs> um i guess when someone draws a line in the sand so clear, you have to respect mm. it um, with something um, like mindfulness. Uh, I, I often joke about it because like, why, why are we thinking so hard about what to do when people close their eyes? <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, um, it's a line in the sand uh, and I, I did respect it. Um, what I did do at work um, was uh, for our principals, I got um, an instructor who I really respected um, to actually lead a half-day session with us. And uh, my ask of this instructor uh, was to give everyone um, kind of like a practical, like uh, experiential exploration of mindfulness. And he, um, credit to him, uh, the first thing he did was uh, a body scan, except a body scan using touch. 
So he told everyone, touch your head, think about your head, touch your shoulders, think about your shoulders. And it's like a 10 minute exercise. And um, I could see uh, in the bodies and just the energy in the room that like everyone was just like so pieced out <laughs> just 10 <laughs> minutes. Um, and then uh, the, after we did a break and we talked about it, uh, he did a second exercise, which was just thinking about the head, thinking about the eyes, thinking about the nose. So the same exercise, but no touch. And uh, yeah, um, it was great. And then the third exercise he did, um, I think was, um, I think it was something a bit more meta-based. Uh, so it was something more about like a more feeling-based. Uh, so similar to what I led everyone through uh, earlier on. And uh, what kind of amazed me was afterwards, uh, one of our principals uh, who's worked with us for about uh, 15 years, uh, he came up to me and he said, uh, so he's about to retire, so he's uh, not a very young man. And he said, you know, he said, um, I've tried to meditate about like 20, 30 years ago and uh, never got anywhere, I gave up. But this half, half a day, I mean, it's, it's kind of changed me. And he said, I'm going to try every day now uh, to do something. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, cool, okay. And about six months later on, I, I was just talking to him and he just said like, you know, by the way, I'm still doing it. <laughs> I was like, wow, okay. Um, I, I didn't really give him a survey uh, to how it helped him uh, at work. I just thought to myself, look, um, if this guy, if this helps him keep his sanity, I'm happy. Mm. And you know, there's a, there's a huge body of literature, um, uh, incredible uh, uh, peer-reviewed scientific studies that look at the efficacy of mental training uh, on the mind and on well-being. And, um, and it's just indisputable at this stage that cultivating your mind leads to better outcomes in life. Um, you know, that just, to, just to kind of uh, to bring the conversation again to the secular nature of practice, you know, mindfulness, you know, if you think of contemplative practice, people tend to think of, you know, maybe Buddhist meditation or, or maybe, uh, 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 you know, practices in the Brahmanic traditions, um, in the Bhagavad Gita. But even in Christianity, you know, the Benedictine and Franciscan monks have a great uh, history of contemplative practice of meditation. Uh, the Sufis uh, from Islam also had their own practice, you know, um, the whole idea of of dealing with the world outside by going inside yourself is not unique to any one spiritual tradition. It's not the monopoly of any one theology. And, you know, science is just the new kid on the block who suddenly had some cool tools that showed that, hey, you know, this stuff actually works. Um, but really throughout history, we see some of the greatest thinkers, some of the most amazing philosophers, poets, uh, leaders, generals, kings of our times who would go off alone and go somewhere quiet and focus on an object for an extended period of time. And when they were calm enough, then they could take a subject and they could explore that subject with even more depth and clarity than they could otherwise. Um, uh, you know, enough on that, uh, on that tone, there's actually another message. Uh, so uh, what is the best way to learn and support the meditation and mindfulness journey in your experience? Uh, do you have any good resources, support or reminders uh, that has been helpful for you and that you can recommend? So in today's day and age, I would highly recommend uh, meditation apps. Particularly, I would recommend um, uh, Calm um, you know, or Insight Timer. Uh, when you start off initially, it's good to have guided meditation. So these meditation sessions are just a couple of minutes long. And usually, they'll, they'll bring you through the process of how you start to settle your mind. 
And it's very common that when you first begin, that you will think that your mind is insane and you will think that you are not a good meditator. This is something that everybody faces because as soon as you go quiet, you'll notice all the noise that is constantly there. And that's the point at which a lot of people give up. But I really, uh, I, I really, really uh, hope that you keep at it and try and find people around you that have similar practice. It could be a yoga practice. It could be someone who, who really likes archery or, or you, know, uh, you know, people that use their breath or use their concentration in, in what they do. And maybe find a community of meditators, maybe go to a meditation class. Um, there are plenty of mindfulness uh, programs out there. Uh, consistency is, is the key to success. So if you do a minute a day, try and find a minute a day. You can do it in the bathroom, you know. Uh, you can do it uh, when you brush your teeth. Um, just find the time and, and lock it in. And the meditation apps are a great tool to get you started on your journey. I'll leave my email address, by the way, in the, in the main uh, chat. So if you have any specific questions, you can always ask me and I'll, I'll try and point you in the right direction. Uh, what do you think, Ix? I think the only thing I can add is, uh, I think different people are really um, suited to different things and you know, that's okay. Uh, it's one of the beautiful things in life that not all of us are the same. So we've observed how um, some people are more suited to sound. Uh, so there are a ton of like, let's say Tibetan singing bowl meditations uh, out there. Um, if you go on this app called Insight Timer, uh, you can search for a whole bunch of free content that you need to be connected to the internet for. Uh, but uh, yeah, there's a ton of audio tracks there, uh, stuff on YouTube too. Uh, some people love uh, Yoga Nidra. Um, these are body scan meditations. It works better for them. Um, some people um, like me, uh, like concentration meditation, uh, where you think about one specific part of your body. You can just keep going down the rabbit hole. Um, some people love uh, Metta, uh, which is a uh, more heart-based, more feeling-based. And I think it's this exploration of um, types of meditation that I think is completely fine for everyone to explore. Um, and also, I think the second thing is uh, figuring out kind of like what works for you in terms of this routine. Um, so I've observed that um, it, whenever I, let's say I run or I do yoga and then I meditate, it really, really makes a huge difference. And uh, I, I guess I tried to biohack and over-intellectualize uh, this experience uh, I guess the, the too long don't read uh, responses. Literally, I was kind of doing a breath exercise, whether I was running or whether I was doing yoga. I was basically focusing on my breath for probably an hour or so before I started to meditate. And that's why it was already pre-preparing uh, my mind uh, for this, uh, which is how it uh, brought me to deeper places. So yeah, I think um, it's worth playing around. You know, one of the beautiful things about this is that uh, there's uh, no wrong answer. Uh, there's another question uh, from uh, Nesh. It's a long question. I'm going to try and read this and uh, not screw up my pronunciation. <clears throat> if human cognition, for the most part, focuses on changes in an environment and meditation, is the awareness of the status quo when our biological compute is so focused on changes or discrepancy? How important is being aware of our biases, traumas, and programming? How have you explored this conditioning of the observer's awareness in your own practice. Yeah, yeah this this uh, this question kind of speaks to 
the innate understanding of the person observing the phenomena, as I understand it. So um, it's kind of um, observing the observer. And, and you know, it's a, it's a fascinating question because sometimes I wonder how much progress have I really made? And this is the, obs the observer trying to observe, uh, uh, you know, myself essentially. Or what, what are my biases? You know, do I think that, you know, ECN is a better person just because he has a practice? Is that clouding my judgment of who he is? And, and you know, it's a slippery slope. Um, I think once you start getting into this world and you start um, trying to look at the way you see the world, you know, Gandhi, Gandhi had this beautiful saying. He said, uh, the quickest way to change the world is to change the way you see it. And he spoke to the importance of the lens in which we see the world through. Meditation and my, uh, contemplative practice is about polishing the lens and creating a kind of clarity to see the world. But sometimes that lens, as it becomes more clear, can be observed with polishing marks by our own doing. Um, there are many spiritual, so-called spiritual practitioners who have inflicted huge damage on their followers because uh, they thought they were enlightened and they used that power to abuse people who are exploitable. So no one is free from this. And I think you're, trying to, you're, you're speaking to that. Um, so, so as you get deeper into the practice, it requires finer and finer self-observation. Um, you know, I feel yeah. like this question, um, okay, so I very early on, um, so I guess when this journey deepened uh, for me, um, I had a teacher tell me to uh, keep an insight journal. So some teachers talk about a meditation journal or insight journal. And I guess what he kind of meant was, um, uh, first, the meditation is meant to be a, okay, some teachers advocate this. I'm not saying it's like for everyone. Um, he said, you, you use the practice as something to kind of settle the mind. And then, uh, and then you use that, that settled mind to evaluate reality. And so when I read that question, I kind of thought about um, the so-called insights and realizations I've had uh, with that clear mind. And um, I think... What the, the, when I read the question, kind of what made me think about was uh, I was lucky enough to hit this um, deep spot in meditation once, once. <laughs> and uh, I, I kind of, when I, I was so deep that when I opened my eyes, I saw how the world was so interconnected. I guess uh, in a Buddhist tradition, they call this a uh, dependent origination. And, uh, the, and what I saw was uh, and heard was there's a crow, there's a rooster crowing. And that crow echoed um, throughout the entire valley. And I just, and I was just sitting uh, and facing this valley as I finished this meditation. And this like kaboom went off in my head, like, oh, how everything is interconnected. Um, so coming, trying to reel myself back to this reality and to your question. Um, yeah, I think uh, this, um, this skill is a precondition that helps us uh, view the reality that we're in. I don't believe it's enough. I think when you talked about our biases, our trauma, our, our programming, I personally feel trauma is an overused term. Um, I don't mean to demean people who actually have trauma. It's just, uh, I hear it said a lot. And um, I feel like mindfulness can get you some sense of awareness. It can kind of help you not get like respond in a very, very bad way, but it's probably not gonna actually help you face it. And I think uh, that's where uh, that whole world of psychotherapy, uh, people called friends, um, et cetera. I think that's where that's really important because um, 
I'm not sure this in itself is going to be that thing that helps you change from within. I think the, you need a lot more um, someone to actually sometimes to do open heart surgery <laughs> on you. Because um, this might help you realize that you might have an issue, um, but this might not uh, actually help you solve it per se. So Isian, there's a question for you. Uh, can you share with us how you've adopted mindfulness in your business? You have a lot of schools. How do you make sure that this happens in your organization and becomes part of the culture? Oh, darn it. That's a hard question, Nicole. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I discussed how, um, I guess when I first looked at this, I realized that it's not something that you can jam down people's throats. I mean, can you think about the number of times that someone said, hey, exercise. <laughs> um, and uh, so I thought that I wanted to introduce it to people um, with um, that instructor and uh, to, to all of my principals in a, in a setting, so a half-day experiential event. Um, and after that, um, what I did was uh, we looked up for programs um, around the world that we could adopt. Uh, currently, we're trialing a program uh, by the Contentment Foundation um, which is, um, we did a lot of research behind um, a what matters most uh, to make sure programs work. Um, and the answer was intervening with the teacher. The teacher needs to have a practice of his or her own uh, before the students are going to be able to have any inkling of a practice. Um, so we found that um, tool and then I were piloting it out. And uh, of course, COVID's come along. <laughs> um, but um, our schools are still in operation in Singapore. And uh, I, from what I, I still hear good things about the program. It's uh, been on trial for the last uh, about three months or two months. And uh, by the end, end of uh, the term, we're going to do a check-in on like, hey, look, um, how's it going? So I had to, I guess I wanted something a bit more structured. That's why I had to turn to a tool. In terms of uh, the, how do I make sure Man, you know, I, I'm not going to make sure because, uh, again, I, I can't really control what goes on between people's ears, right? Um, I guess, some, you know, I hear, I get very impatient um, when I hear people repeat the same thing over and over again. And then I realized that as a leader in my company, I have to repeat things over and over <laughs> again for things to really become culture, for things to become uh, something that people realize that management um, is serious about. Um, and, you know, I'm still a bit shy about talking about my personal practice. So I think uh, this is something that um, I have to continue working on. And actually, um, I think uh, touching on the element of shyness in me, um, I feel like, uh, especially in this time, ironically, where it's most important, um, I haven't led a meditation in my own company, uh, to my own headquarters. And, uh, you know, uh, it feels like we're playing whack-a-mole uh, all the time. And uh, it's probably something I should do. I, I do it sometimes. I just uh, haven't done it recently. I think because my own mental state is like. Hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I am aware, uh, everyone, that it's, uh, it's a bit past eight. Uh, so we have one last question. And uh, we'll just answer that and we'll let everyone go back to their lives. So has meditation and mindfulness practice changed you as a, a leader? And can you share that journey? That is a, that is a long, long answer. Uh, but the short answer is yes. <laughs> and I think uh, if, I can, if I can leave everyone um, with, uh, with a thought on 
beginning their journey or taking the first steps. Um, think, of, think of your practice when you begin, like tuning a guitar string. If you want to jump into this with both feet right after this call, that's amazing and I wish you well. Uh, but also, it can, you can have so much enthusiasm and effort that can burn out quickly. So think of a guitar string. If you, if you tune it too tight, it snaps. So if you put in too much effort too hard in the beginning, you burn out. If it's too loose, you know, if you leave this, this idea for another year, you'll never begin as well. So try and keep tuning that balance. You know, maybe start with a minute a day and go from there. Um, and keep in mind that there is no end. Um, the, the whole point of this is to cultivate and find the beauty in the process. It's the most counterintuitive practice in the world. Uh, in a way, you have to start training without an end in mind. But, but yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's a beautiful way of seeing that, that will result from it. So be patient and just enjoy the process. Yex? I guess, um, touching on, um, was it a Nash's? Uh, yeah, Nash's earlier point. Um, I, I think um, mindfulness kind of was a great self-reflection tool. And um, I kind of, um, it brings to mind um, one of the insights I had uh, one day. Um, I don't know why, but uh, I, when I was reaching one of these uh, deep places and I just kind of realized that uh, I felt a lot of, um, I guess, I don't know what the word is, guilt, sadness, unhappiness, um, uh, particularly around all the people that um, I had to ask to leave the company at some point. I think uh, as a, any manager, any leader of an organization, at some point you've had to have a difficult conversation with someone. And uh, that conversation uh, for you um, is probably the worst conversation you have that day. And to the other person is probably the worst conversation that person will have probably in his life, maybe, potentially. And I, in that moment where I realized that I still felt a lot of sadness around this, um, I kind of visualized um, this thing where I, I thought of everyone that I've ever asked to let go. And I kind of um, thanked them um, for serving with us, uh, thanked them um, for teaching me, and, um, and I thanked them one after another. And uh, I think when that practice was over, I felt um, actually like a, a like a weight was um, taken away from me. So I guess to your question about um, how it's kind of helped me, um, it's definitely been an immense uh, self-reflection tool. Uh, on occasions, it can lead to change um, like uh, this. Um, on probably most other occasions, um, what it will do is just to help me avoid making god-awful mistakes. Uh, because like, how often do you make great mistakes when you go into fight or flight mode, right? Uh, mm. Like I think all of us remember uh, probably the the dumbest things you've ever done were probably in that mode. So I think uh, it's kind of helped in that regard. And I think especially um, in this time, in this time right now, where everyone is completely stressed out. Um, when talk people talk about unprecedented, uh, this is one of the few rare times it is pretty much unprecedented. Um, and um, you need to make good decisions at this point of time. And uh, anything that can help you get any kind of mental space, um, it's there for you. It's just whether you want to pick it up or not. Uh, I think the last question is uh, from Nicole. And uh, it's, uh, how is meditation helping you with your new babies? Um, has it helped? Um, I think uh, I was talking about how uh, my babies have been teaching me uh, about, um, I guess, 
Um, it's not really good or bad. It just is. <laughs> when a baby's crying, it just is. You didn't make the baby cry. Baby's just crying. Um, but uh, I think uh, in terms of um, one, one of the things uh, that's pretty cool is uh, so I, I do a lot of skin on skin contact because uh, my wife makes me do skin on skin contact with my babies. Um, so I, what it is uh, for people without children or who haven't heard about this hippie term before is uh, basically I have to take off my shirt. Baby doesn't have a shirt on and then we're doing uh, chest on chest skin on skin contact. It can sometimes lead to some very odd uh, interactions with your baby where your baby frantically looks for a nipple to suck. Um, and, um, you know, sorry, bro. I mean, I got nothing, I got nothing for you. I mean, again, mindfulness. I, I, I can't help you. Um, but um, I, okay, when, when my babies aren't hungry and looking for milk, uh, and uh, they kind of just kind of like just turn their head and their ear is against my chest. And I can hear I think they can hear my heartbeat and that assures them and uh, I can feel their heartbeat and that is pretty cool. And uh, that's one of those moments uh, where uh, I don't really need to be meditating, but I know I'm mindful uh, and uh, I'm totally in the present. And uh, yeah, you are very aware that, you know, talk about impermanence, right? Your babies only are your babies the way how they are today. Mm. And, uh, so that's been pretty cool. It's been a journey and uh I'm going to say that, you know, between a confinement nanny and mindfulness, pick the confinement nanny. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, I, I think it's, it's uh, been a wild ride. So uh, from Ecian's babies to, uh, to kids that some of you may or may not have, uh, to the inner child inside you, uh, both Ecian and I really hope that you continue your practice and yeah, get started, get going, uh, just get, get your foot in the baby pool and have fun. And uh, it's a long road, but a very, very worthwhile one. So with that, everyone, thank you so much for joining uh, the Inner Leadership uh, Conference today and uh, for participating in this really small event. We really appreciate your support and hope that you can bring some of these ideas to the rest of the world. So thank you, everyone, and good night. Good night. Bye.